Welcome back to What's on Your Mind. I'm Dr. Gene Bresson. And I'm Dr. Steve Schlossman. And we're child psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Here's what we'll talk about today. Today we're going to be talking about creativity and mental illness, and we're so pleased to have Dr. Mark Vonnegut, who's a pediatrician, a writer, and who's overcome a number of challenges in his life. And I want to begin by just saying that, you know, back in the 70s when I was uh, first getting into this field um, I uh, and wanted to be a training director, I used to hand out an article that he wrote. It was published in Harper's called Why I Want to Bite R.D. Lang. Now, R.D. Lang was a psychiatrist who didn't believe in mental illness and who glamorized schizophrenia. And uh, Wait, glamorized it in what way? What do you mean? Well, he, you know, it's like really cool to have these out-of-body experiences, hallucinations, you know, and it was kind of a... It was groovy. It was groovy. Yeah. It, was, it was really groovy, and it was considered to be kind of a special state of mind. But actually what he missed, <laughs> which Mark picked up, was the terrible suffering and the challenges. So, Mark, so nice to have you here. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what you went through and how you overcame some of these challenges. Well, I've been very lucky, but I certainly really early on recognized that psychosis is a destructive state and that you can go there a few times maybe and recover completely, but if you go there over and over, the wires overheat and they melt and you can't get back to where you could be. It was... You know, it feels like everybody's life, I think, to them feels normal. And, you know, so when people ask me, what was it like to grow up the son of Kurt Vonnegut, that doesn't really resonate very much. I can tell you what it was like to grow up the new kid on Cape Cod. I can tell you what it was like to be the only Democrat, um, uh, you know, on the North Shore of, of Cape Cod. I can tell you what it was like to fight every day at school. But kids just deal with what they have to deal with, and uh, and I thought I had been dealt a um, sort of rough hand, but I was willing to play it. And you know, things that I, in retrospect, can say, okay, well, that's sign of disease, like chatting to God, like muttering, "Forgive them, Father; they know not what they do." Under my breath, a lot. You, uh, just for the record, you didn't write that line. I just want to <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But later, right. <laughs> I did. I did believe. Uh, a little is early in adolescence. I believe that I had come up with God is love. I was really thought that was completely original. I didn't try to copyright it, but um. <laughs> God is love TM tra- tra- trademark. At the- yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But you know, I was just sort of muddling through. And when you, in your early 20s, end up in a psychiatric hospital, it, at le- it should make you stop and think a little bit. <laughs> so why am I here? What is going on or whatever? And in retrospect, I can see, you know, uh, affective disorder. Uh, and I can certainly see it for generations in my family. I was diagnosed initially as schizophrenic, but I think that was wrong. I think it was that I was so other uh, to the people who were taking care of me. In other words, I was 125 pounds. I looked like an Old Testament prophet. I was a voluntary member of the underclass. We were called hippies. And, um, <laughs> and I think in the 60s and 70s, it was hard for black people to get a diagnosis of bipolar or manic depression. They were, if they were crazy, they were all schizophrenic. So if somebody was crazy and you thought they were really, really crazy and probably not going to get better, you got called a schizophrenic. 
Uh, then I, I work my way up through the ranks as a schizophrenic who might get better on lithium. And they were right, but they didn't, you know, the, the thing is there was no, the diagnostic criteria were not clear, and I don't find them all that helpful now. They're not. No, I mean, I was just going to say what you just told is, is an awesome cautionary tale around the limitations of our of our terminology. We throw these terms around as if they are rarefied, as if they exist in a dichotomous way, and they do not. We know they don't. And you got caught right in the middle of that, um, especially in the early 70s, where, where the diagnosis of schizophrenia was actually given about two times more than it is now. You know, and, and we still don't even know what it is now. I think if you were really, really psychotic and you didn't have any clear periods for the first week or so, then you were schizophrenic. Right. Right. So you you also somehow went to medical school. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that's an important point, too, because a lot of people yeah. sort of assume that if you find yourself in a psychiatric hospital in your 20s, you don't go to medical school. Right. Well, an interesting thing happened when I started getting better was I was really, really curious about what was disease and what was me and what could I do. And among the things, uh, which I in retrospect now see that my inability to do math and science later in high school and in college uh, was not because of the war in Vietnam and not wanting to be part of the German scientific <laughs> community. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have sort of a joke in my family. We say, Ninus Deutsch, Latvian. We're all Latvian. Sure, we. It's funny. <laughs> we can go back to that later. My wife is Latvian. Yeah. It's a narcissism of small differences, right? Like, right. It's right. But anyway, um, so when I was when I got better, and I had very responsive psychiatrists, as I say, they were working with me, and what seemed to be happening with me. I believe the clinical guidelines at that time said that somebody who had had three psychotic breaks and da 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 should be on phenothiazine for at least five years or something. So folks know those are medicines like Thorazine. Yeah, for that's exactly what it was. And I was weaned over the course of about six months. And I don't think I get to go to medical school if I'm kept on Thorazine for five years. And I have been lucky with my psychiatrist all the way along. And when the diagnosis 15 years later was changed to bipolar disease, which, uh, window dressing for manic depression, I felt good felt well uh, and did well at a serum level of 0.5 of lithium, which at the time was said to be insufficient. But my psychiatrist said, you seem to be doing okay, so we're going to run you here at 0.5. So, so, so he did this novel thing. He treated the patient amazing. as opposed to the drug <laughs> level. Right. Absolutely amazing. Or she did. I shouldn't have made an assumption. It was a he. Yeah. It was a he. It's that's a great – I mean, a, so so many lessons in this story, right? Like, yeah. like you – because still, you know, in teaching medical students or in teaching at Harvard among the faculty, I find faculty who can't fathom the notion that somebody could have a psychiatric illness and also be a doctor. They just can't get their mind around it. Other members of our faculty. Right. Um, and as you point out, of course, any – I mean, if you're well enough to do it, you're well enough to do it. Right. And there is still, I still have to go through all the nonsense other people have to go through. Like when my health insurance changes, I have to call them and say, I haven't been hospitalized for a while and I would like to see a psychiatrist because I want to keep it that way. And that cuts through some of the red tape. Mm -hmm. And But, you know, the, the just to your point, both of your points, I mean, it's not a mystery. It's a fact that about 20 to 40 percent of physicians have mood disorders higher than the general population. And yet, 
it's so stigmatized that nobody wants to admit it. I mean, what's what's so great about your situation and about your coming here is that you know you're you're open, you're open about it. And I want to just segue into another thing. And not only have you been successful, but as a pediatrician, I, I think you're you're looking closely, or you tell me, <laughs> at kids who may be at risk or who are showing signs and are doing things proactively to actually not just destigmatize, but to kind of catch them before right. things get out of hand. Right. I have been very stubborn about uh, making mental health concerns not separate. I have two social workers in a not very big practice. Every new patient, every newborn gets a call from the social workers about resources and this, and that this is completely normal. Yeah, we're, we're, screening, we're screening for uh, postpartum you know, depression and all this, but we don't say that's what, you know, but along the way, people get the idea that there are many entry points into not feeling well and to feel better. I also have stumbled on having community acupuncture there, which is, you know, rather than have a six-month wait, nothing against neurology or psychiatry. <laughs> no, no, I, and, and, neither and, do we. we. We have something against a six-month wait, right, but not against right, neurology and psychiatry, right. yeah. But I can say, geez, you have these chronic headaches. Uh, uh, why don't we try a little acupuncture? And if nothing else, the person will be quiet and sit down and be touched by a compassionate person. And damn if the headaches don't get better. And so... Yeah, we all the time are seeing anxious and depressed kids. And I never, ever, ever do one thing. I say, well, let me think. What are you doing now that might... Well, um, you could clean up your room. You could stop... You you know, you could s stop drinking on the weekends. You could stop swearing at your mother. You could, you know. And I often will even use therapy, especially with teen boys as a threat. I said, well, you can try these things, and if it works, you might not have to talk about your feelings. <laughs> that's, that's actually really astute. Somebody who remembers his adolescence well, it sounds like. Can, can I, I – I can't resist this. You're, you're a great writer, um, and as a myself, a, a nascent writer, there is this kind of notion we have that creativity is tied to to some kind of psychiatric illness, especially we hear about this with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are about that. I think mental illness is really common and there is something protective about the arts. I think if you can write well or paint well or play music, you can, with the same genetic loading or whatever we can measure eventually, uh, you will find out that the people who can sing and dance a little bit, and also just sort of in terms of a devastating illness persisting in our gene pool, is uh, if you can sing and dance, paint, write, you're going to ha have a better luck having somebody be willing to have babies with you. Right? So do you – I already accomplished that, by the way. Oh, right? good. Um, but <laughs> do, do, you, do you prescribe create creative endeavors? Like – I have an art room in my office, and if parents want to talk to me alone or whatever, I'll send the kids in there. I'll often do the exam in there. There's a digital piano in there. There's lots of art materials. The social workers will often take somebody in there, and they don't know that draw a person is a test, but they, you know. So, so it's really fascinating. I mean, we hear that there's a package deal in terms of the way the brain is wired, that, that creativity 
goes along mm-hmm. with mood disorders, that perhaps mm-hmm. people who feel more, who experience more at a very deep level, mm-hmm. or sometimes they have greater propensity, talent, to be creative. And at the same time, I think I hear you saying that creativity is also protective because it gives them an outlet. Right. So what do you think about all of that? I think... The way people usually look at art, which I hate, is a sort of the lust for life, like they were so creative, they went crazy. And I think they would have died a lot sooner if they had not been creative. I think my father could have easily just been another homeless vet with PTSD. I don't think Van Gogh killed himself. Nobody who's painting that well, at, you know, I think he was, and there's some nice historic information now that says that Van Gogh, that Van Gogh did not kill himself. Uh, you don't shoot yourself in the belly aiming down. Come on. So I do think the arts are protective. And I think that somebody who accomplishes something, whether it's music or whatever, I think they feel better and... My definition, what I think great art is, is people who are desperate enough to tell the truth through the arts one way or another. And that comes out as great art. And, and they, get just, they, get, they get some relief. It's cathartic. It's, yeah, they get relief. But and the rest of us get less lonely. Yeah. Oh, that's such a lovely way of putting it. I, we can't do better than that on this podcast. Like that. <laughs> That's, <laughs> that's the so. best. People who are desperate enough... Say it again. To tell the truth. And, and to, you know, so I think it's really important, you know, in my work, I don't know who's going to be, have what challenges. So to have kids paint and draw and try a musical instrument and, you know, try a team sport and an individual sport. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of things that I think uh, if you have a little bit of that in your life, you can always reactivate it. That's Keats. It's truth. It's beauty. Beauty, truth. It's, it's perfect. Dr. Keats. Doctor, that's true. Keats the physician. <laughs> yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Yes, I really appreciate all of this. And I think um, for the listeners out there, you know, uh, there have been a lot of studies, even if you, whether you have a mental illness or not, there is a real importance to having time to be creative, to express yourself. And, you know, more and more research is showing that, you know, the more we overschedule kids or we push them, you know, largely into academics and overachievement and we don't give them time to express themselves in one way or another, we're actually holding them back. And I think that's exactly what you're pointing out. So anyway, I want to thank, thank you very much for coming. And if any of you listeners have comments or thoughts about, about this topic, please Write them down and let us know. You're going to edit out all the dumb things I said, right? I don't. I didn't hear too many. I, I got to find I, a dumb thing. I didn't hear dumb things. I didn't hear it either. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Steve Slosman. See y'all. <laughs>